from Luminary and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, how Jacqueline Novogratz left a career in investment banking to try and change the world of philanthropy. It was only when I was sitting on the plane that I thought, what have I done? I don't even know where I'm going. I don't know a soul. I don't have any money. And um, here goes. Jacqueline Novogratz and the story of Acumen coming up next. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Many years ago, when Jacqueline Novogratz was working for an NGO in Kigali, Rwanda, she spotted a boy wearing a blue sweater. It was strange because the sweater seemed very familiar to her. And the more she looked, the more she realized that it was actually her sweater, a sweater she had donated to Goodwill a decade earlier. Jacqueline had a kind of epiphany moment where she realized the interconnectedness of the world and her own potential to make an impact in someone's life. Today, Jacqueline is the co-founder and CEO of Acumen. It's a nonprofit that raises money from donors who are actually called investors to finance social enterprises around the world. Acumen has delivered more than $100 million in loans, grants, and investments in things like medical clinics, solar energy projects, and businesses that help low-income people around the world. Jacqueline applies the principles and ideas she learned as a young investment banker not to make a massive profit, but to help empower communities to grow and thrive. Jacqueline grew up in a pretty large household. She was one of seven kids, the daughter of a military officer who served three tours of duty in Vietnam. And as a young girl, 
she was particularly inspired by the stories of women saints. Those were the only stories that we read that were essentially the narratives of women who directed their own lives. Hmm. They were also the first examples for me of people who lived and in some cases were willing to die for an idea. So I don't know if I thought of it in terms of, you know, I want to change the roles of capitalism, but I definitely wanted to do good and to be of use from a very young age. Hmm. What did your parents expect out of you? You know, when you were a student and you eventually were ready to leave home and go to college, what did they expect you to do and to become? You know, when you grow up as one of seven, particularly as the eldest, I think what you integrate into yourself is more that sense of responsibility for the tribe. My parents had a great expectation that we would take care of ourselves at some level and importantly, take care of others and contribute somehow to the world. So it was quite vague in terms of dreams. I was of that generation where parents didn't dictate where you would go to school or even how you would get into school, but rather independence. When I got into university, I actually wanted to be an English major. Um, And that was when my father uh, intervened and said, you know, you're never going to be able to support yourself as an English major. Maybe you should be an economics major, which I was not at all interested in. But I compromised and I went to foreign affairs and economics and took every English class I could, whether for credit or not. So I was, um, I think it was more driven by my parents to make sure I could provide for myself and for the world. Mm. When you um, when you graduated from college from the University of Virginia, you went to a job interview at Chase Bank and um, and apparently the person interviewing you said, why, why do you want to be a a banker, and you said, because my parents really have forced me to to apply for this job. Um, is that true? Did your parents kind of push you to go work for a bank? Yeah, and, and again, my parents didn't they my, they didn't force us to do anything, but they were and still are an incredibly powerful, I would say, moral force in hmm. our lives. And so they, we were always cutting deals. You know, I paid my way through school, and I was fiercely independent. And yet also, I guess, a dutiful child. And so the deal we cut when I announced to them with a lot of certainty that I was going to take a year off after school because I had worked so hard through university, um, they said, well, that's a great idea. However, we think it would be good experience for you. Yeah. And then as a kid who couldn't afford to travel but always yearned to know the world, it was in that interview where the guy was like, "Well, that's too bad if you don't want to be a banker because you know, this job you'd have you'd be in forty countries in the next three years." You um, you became a banker and spent three years, in, in fact, doing that and traveling around the world. And and did I mean I mean now when you look back at that, it's hard to believe that you were a banker, knowing what what <laughs> what I know about you and what, what what's happened to you in your life. But but I mean, working for Chase, you know a classic New York um, bank, I mean, it must have given you a really important foundation for what you would eventually do with your life. It was extraordinary. I always liked numbers, and yet I never understood how numbers could really tell a story. And suddenly, by understanding financial statements of companies, or in some cases, entire portfolios for countries, I could see where priorities lie. I could see 
what the financial health of an entity was. And I could start to understand that if you really wanted to build something, you had to be able to cover the costs of what it would entail. And so suddenly I found this superpower that I loved. I didn't love, of course, how that superpower was only afforded to those who had access to the banks. And since I was spending so much of my time at that point in Latin America during a, a, a financial crisis, it was acute, the difference between the elites that had access to financial services and the rest of the country in places like Brazil, Argentina, Chile, hmm. who wouldn't even walk into the doors of the banks. Is that what led you to leave? I mean, 1986, you leave Chase to go work in the nonprofit sector. Basically, I mean, you're, you're a really young woman at this point. You're probably 25, and, and uh, I mean, you're probably making really great money at Chase. And um, But what, what was the thing that just got you to say, you know what, I'm done with this. I don't want to do this. Yeah, and, and, and my first impulse was not to leave the private sector. As I said, I really loved the culture and the... And the life was extraordinary, um, being in a different country every month for somebody that was 25 years old. I actually proposed to the my boss that I create a program for low-income people within the bank. <laughs> and it was in a conversation with him at that moment when it was very clear to me that if I stayed, I was never going to explore this other set of possibilities and then it got compounded, Guy, when the COO of the whole bank kind of plucked me out and said, you know, we have this real career for you here at Chase. And suddenly the stakes got very, very high because I hmm. knew then if I took this job with him, I probably would never leave. Yeah. And so I had to go. A, a lot of people at that phase in life would not do that or they might not know to do that. I've always felt, and I actually feel that all of us have inside of us a bull and a dove. Uh, my bull and my dove just tend to be more prominent inside of me. And so um, there was this such a deep desire to know the world and to be an adventurer. And so I didn't think twice. I was quite cavalier, in fact, when I would, took the elevator up to the 60th floor to announce to the COO of Chase that I was going to move to Africa. And he was like, are you kidding me? You know, do you understand what you're giving up? And, um, and even then I didn't fully understand it. It was only when I was sitting on the plane listening to Joni Mitchell's Blue Album that I thought, what have I done? I don't even know where I'm going. I don't know a soul. I don't have any money. And um, here goes. Hmm. So you went. So I went. And your first... Your first assignment would turn out to be kind of a disaster. Kind of a disaster, right? Um, but a, a disaster that, in retrospect, maybe maybe had to happen, right? Um, and I guess you were you were working for a, a nonprofit organization. So when you when you got to to the Ivory Coast, um, I guess you were really there to to kind of help develop the the local economy, right? To to like start giving loans to to small businesses there in partnership with the local bank is. Is that like what? What was your official job? I was officially supposed to be an ambassador to help women set up these um, microfinance entities. Um, microfinance being tiny loans to low-income women so that they could start tiny businesses. And um, here I was, twenty-five years old, with 
three whole years of banking under my belt, thinking that I was going to save the world. And I had to confront very quickly and very painfully that most people don't want to be saved, particularly not by, you know, young people who had no understanding of the culture, very little facility with the language and uh, hadn't even been properly introduced in a way that anybody fully understood why I was there. And so it was a deep dive into making every mistake that one could make in development, but it happened so quickly that it was almost a gift, as you say, in that way. How long did you stay in, in Cote d'Ivoire? Less than six months. Um, I, I also didn't understand then um, all the other layers of power within an, an existing status quo. Um, mm. I think too often we, we idealize people or we victimize people. And in a way, I had done both. I had both victimized the poor who needed help, and I had idealized some of the elites who wanted my job. Mm. And so I wasn't really seeing anybody as fully human with all their flaws and all of their perfections including myself, I had to really reevaluate what it meant to recognize I was a guest, meet every person, you know, fully for who they were, and present a truer version of myself that I was there to learn, not to quote-unquote help. Hmm. And that changed everything. When you were, when you kind of left after just a, a series of bad experiences there, did you think that that was sort of that it was that was it you were kind of done oh no with- oh no 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 because the stakes were so high because i had told this man tony triciano that you know i'm going to africa and not taking your big fancy career this was the coo at, at chase yeah 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 there was no possible way i was going back a complete failure and so um i moved to east africa this is in rwanda no this is in kenya in um, kenya with okay. another opportunity where i failed again I had another big failure of, again, confronting what the status, we talk all the time and young people talk all the time about rejecting the status quo. Yeah. But when we think of the status quo, we so often somehow think of these big, immovable systems rather than the everyday realities that are around us. Sometimes the status quo are our parents, you know, our local religious leaders, our local civic leaders. Very small institutions, big institutions, you know, people don't like change. And so here I was in this little institution that was fledgling and in trouble. And I thought by naming the problem, we would clearly be much better able to solve it. Hmm. But that was not appreciated. And that's when I moved to Rwanda. I met a woman who um, invited me in because women had, for the first time in history, now we're in 1986 gotten access to open a bank account for the first time in history without their husband's signature. So you get to Rwanda. This is an opportunity for women to to be able to take out loans, which was a, a, in 1986, 87, this was, this was revolutionary. Women at, until that point were not able to, to take out loans to start businesses. No, they were under Napoleonic code until 1986. They were put in the same category as the mentally incapable. And it was also the time the country had elected its first three women parliamentarians, who were three of my co-founders. You know, all run, owned, managed by Rwandan women. And together you built this this microfinance institution. 
And what did you? I mean, initially, was it was that model making microloans and um, and you know, it's sort of a timetable for repayments? Was that the initial model, or was it just a grant of money for women entrepreneurs? So we would make these thirty dollars loans at very low interest to incredibly poor women. Women, the average income at the time was about one hundred and twelve dollars a year, and yet I was undaunted by those low income levels. And it was really important to me that the women owned this, that it was theirs. And that included asking even poor women to contribute to the bank, which I look back now, was it was a radical move, but it was also crazy. And yet people did. They would bring just a few Rwandan francs and, mm-hmm. and they would contribute to it. Were there women who were, um, you know, who were accepting the loans and kind of I don't know. I mean, they were getting loans from these, you know, this this microfinance bank that was backed by, you know, big Western donors. I mean, did any of them say, were any of them sort of puzzled about the, the repayment system? I mean, in other words, did any of them say, well, what, why would it matter? I mean, these big, you know, Western countries or donors aren't going to care about a $500 loan or $200 loan. Um, yes, there were... A number of our borrowers who assumed that we weren't individuals. And so ironically, while they might pay 10% per day to the local money lender who they knew and had a personal relationship with, they would default on our 12% per year loan. And when I would be, you know, crushed and feeling betrayed that we weren't being taken as seriously, the explanation which came only after a couple of years of being there, was exactly what you say, Guy, that we don't know the money that's behind this, whereas we need the people in our community. And so I started to understand at a deeper level as well the kind of entanglement within community and the risk of both under-empathy and, um, frankly, Mm over-empathy. And so when we could hold this tension between generosity and accountability, that's when we started to cook with gas and everybody started to understand the rules and feel really proud to be part of the organization. But we had to do a lot more capability building, Hmm. um, both among our team and among the women in the markets, so that they could not only have access to financial services, but they could make use of the access, make use of the opportunity and begin to thrive. And I think that's so often what we miss today when we look at poverty and we say, well, you know, everyone has an opportunity, but that's not enough. We have Mm -hmm. to also build capability to make use of opportunity. Mm -hmm. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. When you, um, I mean, you, you went on to business school, you came back to the U.S. and went to business school. And presumably you went to business school thinking, OK, I am going to get an MBA and I'm going to try to figure out how I can make a, a contribution in this way and not in a, in a finance job or something like that. Yeah. It was very clear when I went to business school that I wanted to increase my own understanding of how business worked and the tools of management and finance so that whether I was going to build a bank in the United States or continue to focus globally on how um, you could use the tools of business to empower poor people to make their own decisions, which is what I actually think is at the root of dignity. How did you begin to develop the idea for what you wanted Acumen to be? I would say I actually apprenticed for about 15 years, which for young people, it sounds like a forever <laughs> amount of time, yeah, right. right? But I never knew that I was apprenticing. You know, each new adventure was essentially putting more tools into my toolbox. Um, from Chase to Rwanda, accidentally, I met Peter Goldmark, who was at the time the president of the Rockefeller Foundation. And he had created this fellowship for just six people, where he would allow those individuals to essentially do whatever we wanted to do for a year. And I was one of the selected fellows. So I spent a year really understanding at the time new financing methods that were really focused on how do you help low-income communities build assets and not just income. And that fundamentally changed me that year that we could actually um, recreate business in a way that actually included low-income people. And it was a fantastic year. That then sent me on a a series of other entrepreneurial ventures in the social sectors that were not a direct line into Mm. Acumen, first starting because of Peter Goldmark, again, the president, kept challenging me. Um, When I would see something that I really disliked along the way, he would say, okay, go fix it. So I really Mm. disliked philanthropy in that it seemed to me that too many people with a lot of wealth were focused on being loved themselves rather than using their money to make fundamental change. And he said, um, well, 
you know, I, then I challenge you to start an organization that would train a new generation of philanthropists to be much more strategic about how they use their um, private capital to solve public problems. Hmm. And, and so I guess it's at this point that you started something called um, Philanthropy Workshop. And, and this is this is like the early 90s and in the U.S., um, the, I think it was around the time of like the Rodney King beatings and the and the uprisings in Los Angeles. And despite the fact that your expertise really was was like an investment, banking and philanthropy, I guess that event sort of made you look towards America and towards some of the problems in this country. Did you feel like this was I don't know, did you did you feel prepared for that challenge? I felt completely unqualified. White um, I didn't see myself as privileged, and that was part of the learning of that experience yeah. that I was, for goodness sakes, with an MBA and a Rockefeller Foundation pedigree. Mm-hmm. But I knew that I could bring these skills that would be more empowering that I was seeing in the traditional charitable sector and where business was too often overlooking low-income people or seeing them as inputs rather than as full human beings that were you know, deliberately trying to give them real opportunity. And so after that 15-year apprenticeship, Mm -hmm. I thought, what have I learned about how capital works and about what capital is even? That somehow along the way, the world divided it, this idea of money into these almost arbitrary buckets that we have financial capital and seemingly the only purpose, at least by the end of the 1990s, was to make more money. And then we have philanthropic capital, which was to, you know, just give it away. And both seem to be suboptimal. And so if you were to start over and look at a spectrum of capital money, how would you structure an investing approach that was very very much focused on enabling poor people to solve their problems? What would that look like? That was the Mm. beginning for me. That was the big question I wanted to answer. And so it all came together with Acumen. You decided to make this a nonprofit rather than a, a for-profit. I mean, because, you know, there, are, there were already social enterprises out there, and, and there are today. You know, there are Ben & Jerry's and the body shops of the world. They, they, were, they were for-profits, but they, were, uh, but they had a social mission. But you decided from the beginning, right, to make acumen a nonprofit. Was there any, I mean, was there any pressure or did, did people say, look, it's not going to work that way. You've got, there has to be, has to be you know, a market-based solution and, and, and that's how you get people, incentivize people to, to work hard and to, you know, so people can recoup their investments and so on and so forth. Did, did, were those conversations part of that, that early journey? Almost everybody thought I should set it up as a for-profit. Mm. I can't tell you how many people would patiently explained to me that I obviously didn't know how business operated. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I raise my money here, I give it away there. And, um, and we were much more, I would say, radical when we started in that Acumen was registered as a nonprofit, but we had the capability of making long-term equity investments or, you know, buying shares in companies or making long-term loans or grants. But that we could be judicious in finding the right entrepreneurs that were trying to solve mm. these big problems of healthcare education. But to me, again, thinking about what is capital, we need the flexibility of a different kind of capital. We need to be able to take bets on those people 
crazy enough in the best way to try things, fail, try again. Um, but if they do it and they find a way to build a self-sustaining mechanism, maybe we'll do a better job at solving problems and using that philanthropy in a way that actually changes things rather than makes just makes us feel good. The, the loans, um, Jacqueline, that you give out, that, that Acumen gives out, um, I mean, they, they aren't insignificant, right? I mean, I mean, the whole point is that th- this, this isn't like traditional charity. I mean, you're really managing investments and businesses and companies that pr- provide services to low-income people. And, and I mean, we're talking about investments of like half a million dollars or is that, is that kind of the, the average loan or, or rather the, investment? Yeah, the average is probably... It, it probably we probably invest between two hundred fifty thousand to a million. So these are companies that have, for the most part, have proven something. Mm. And they're all focused on education, healthcare, agriculture, or clean energy. That's your those are your sort of the, the, the buckets that you mm-hmm. focus on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jacqueline, as you have, I mean, it's been twenty years. You've invested one hundred twenty plus million dollars in in. You know, countries around the world, Africa and Latin America and Southeast Asia and the U.S. And I mean, the, the, the story of Acumen has been such a success. But I'm wondering over the past 20 years, clearly you have also seen um, the impact of capitalism and shareholder profit at all costs on uh, in, in many of these countries. And clearly it has had an influence on your thinking because you've written a book calling for a moral revolution. First of all, um, why do you think we need to have a moral revolution right now? Huh. Uh, you know, I've, I wrote the book before COVID, mm. but COVID uh, in and of itself exposed uh, the gaping wounds of what unbridled capitalism and technology, frankly, that these two forces also have within them the potential to destroy us. They've left us so unequal They've left us with broken healthcare systems, broken food systems, broken criminal justice systems. All these systems are entangled. And so every one of our institutions needs a moral rejuvenation that moves from being driven by a success based on money, power, and fame. And certainly profit is at the center of all three of those mm. to one that that dares to put our shared humanity and the sustainability of the earth at the center, um, and and so it's not it's not a, a moral revolution of righteousness, you know, my right over your right, yeah. nor is it you know a set of rules prescribed from above, but it's a moral revolution that dares to flip the system, if you will, and insists on a definition of success that looks at how the poor and the vulnerable are treated, not just creates a world where the wealthy can thrive. It's sort of the book. The book kind of reads as a almost like a leadership guide for um, for people to think about how to operate any kind of business, really. And and I want to kind of touch on some of the ideas that you talk about in the book. Um, one of them is you call for people to cultivate a moral imagination. Um, so so w- what do you mean by that? Moral imagination starts by putting ourselves in other people's experiences, even if we know we can't fully feel them, we have the courage to see those people, that person inside ourselves and us, us in them as equals, which means, you know, as I inferred before, neither idealizing nor victimizing them. 
moral imagination also then I see as a muscle. It's very active. It requires immersing in the lives of others, getting close, understanding problems, including structures that get in their way, but being honest as well about where people might get in their own way, and then acting. And so it's almost a four-part process, but the basis of that moral imagination is to build from the perspective of others and not just ourselves. Do you think, Jacqueline, I mean, this is a sort of a weird moment, right? Because we're in the middle of this pandemic, and which has brought obviously a health crisis and an economic crisis. And there's also a social justice reawakening in the United mm. States that has, that has uh, really kind of revealed a 400-year-old crisis, certainly in the United States and, and in many Western countries, when it comes to social justice and, and inequality. And it seems to me that so many of these conversations is around capitalism and around where capitalism is today. This is, the, this is sort of the model that we've all kind of settled on. And for decades, we've heard that the capitalist system is the greatest generator of wealth. It, it lifts people out of poverty. And of course, a, a lot of it's true. But it's a problematic model, too. And I wonder if you have started to think about capitalism as a model that probably needs to be fully reimagined. Hmm. I think that the the risk of deciding that there's no place for capitalism whatsoever is that we throw out the good as well as the bad. And that another one of the principles in the books is holding opposing truths without rejecting either. And that the answer to the conundrum of capitalism lies in holding this uncomfortable tension as well. I do think that there is a freedom and an innovation that comes from being able to have choice in our individual lives, but it can't come at the cost of the community. What would a a capitalist system that is more humane and equitable look like? How, How would we start to think about creating that? It would require us to not only acknowledge, but quantify and build narrative around how our employees are treated, how the environment is treated. We would reduce the value of companies that are actually hurting the environment. We would increase the value of companies that were going out of their way to hire people from vulnerable communities, people who required additional training. And we would also look at our responsibility to the consumers. And that would be the new story we would start to tell so that we could lift the the business models and the role models based on the amount of human energy they're releasing into the world, the amount of good we're contributing to society, rather than simply the amount of money that we were making. If we really put our moral imagination into action, we have the models, we have the technology and the skills. What we've got to do is this, is, this is that idea of the moral revolution. What is our responsibility to each other? Capitalism cannot exist in a vacuum hmm. without the, the guardrails of what a good society needs. But we need a new conversation. What, what do you think, Jacqueline, uh, oh, uh, that you've learned over the years? And I, I have a hunch that part of it is... Um, based on your experiences, your early experiences in Africa, um, what is 
the secret superpower leader needs to have and learn in order to be effective? The superpower is listening. All of our leaders are shouting at each other. The superpower is listening not from a place of certainty, but of inquiry. If we took the time to listen to each other, we would find the solutions. Because all the problems that we get into are human problems, and we can get out of them. You know, Guy, we went back to those early years in Africa and where I had started this microfinance bank with the Rwandan women. And then um, a few years later, the genocide uh, ripped apart the entire country. And I saw a country um, in complete ruins. I also had to confront the fact that the women who I loved and worked with played out every role of the genocide, including being perpetrators. And so I went back to visit with those women. Going back to Rwanda taught me that sometimes listening itself can be not just an act of hope, but an act of love. And I would sit there sometimes three, six, ten hours, and I'd listen to the stories of survivors on both sides, perpetrators and those who had lost everyone in their family. And um, I would see the impact on the people of just being listened to, Hmm. but also the insights that I would gain. And so... um, May this, in this time of Black Lives Matter and their uh, crisis of social injustice and health calamity and economic dislocation, you know, would it be that all of us listen a lot harder, particularly given that we are making big decisions as a nation? It's in our darkest times that we can sometimes find our best selves, but then we really have to fight those urges. Um, to give in to the easier path of um, the blaming, the shaming, and um, and get to work of reimagining and rebuilding. And I think that's been what's driven my life and where I've been so inspired to see a country in ruins rebuild itself. And so if they can do it, we can do it. Mm-hmm. It's listening. It's the single most important thing to start. It is. Yeah. It, is the, it is to start. And then I would say... Then it's also because I think I had to learn the hard way that it's then knowing when to stop listening and just go lead. Yeah. Because I'm such a listener that then I would hear another another <laughs> input, another input, another <laughs> input. And then it's like, okay, done, enough. And, you know, that same over-empathy, under-empathy, um, a, a lot of people will say, well, the community knows everything. And I used to p- kind of buy that and like, that is such an unfair approach. (laughs) Maybe you could actually bring in some of what you know too, not in an arrogant way, but like sometimes the community is wrong. Yeah, that's right. um, And and that's the humanity part too and the humor part. But one thing we didn't talk about, Guy, is that, you know, COVID has accelerated all of the changes that we started to see in the last 10 years. I'm watching a lot of our entrepreneurs make radical decisions on the spot because they can now. Yeah. A number of our companies have gone from a tech platform to a partnership with government to ensure that everybody gets access to healthcare. You know, boom, 10 days. Yeah. It happens. And so that, I feel, is also a harbinger of good news because the future requires that 
our corporations, our governments, our civil society, our private companies all need to change. And they all need to put purpose first and people first, as well as the planet. And that should drive our policy. That should drive the way that we construct our companies. That should drive the way we teach our students in business schools so that we focus on character and not just on the content, which we've somehow satisfied ourselves was enough. And so I go back and forth in that way. Hmm. I am not an apologist for unbridled capitalism. I think it's, I've always thought it's a cruel system. Hmm. And given that I've worked with communities that experience it at its cruelest, I could write a book just about that. And yet I've also seen the power that comes when people do have access to markets in the best of ways as a form of freedom guy. And that matters. That's Jacqueline Novogratz. She's the founder and CEO of Acumen, as well as the author of the book, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, Practices to Build a Better World. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today.